from becoming a Catholic. Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? you, you, you. This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, we made it to Friday. What do you know? Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, this is a great resource to get that question answered in the in the privacy of radio. It's just you talking to us, us talking to you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening to us uh, outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always uh, send us an email, the address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. I'm Tom Price along with... Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing decent. Thank you so much. Normally at this time, I would be saying uh, our uh, social media guru, Jeff Burson, is on social media. And, uh, you know, if you'd like to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook and, and all that. Well, can't quite do that after today because Jeff is uh, retiring today after 37 years with EWTN. That is absolutely wonderful that he has had such an excellent tenure and horrible that for me that he's leaving. Well, yeah, for me too. He's he's my office buddy. Yeah, uh, we we we've shared many many great stories. You know, she was hired by Mother Angelica back in the day. He's done many different things at the network, worn many hats, and uh, we're gonna well, miss him. We are gonna miss him an awful lot, but it's been a pleasure working with him. Absolutely, gonna lead off today uh, with an email from Don in Washington. And this is uh, regarding uh, a caller who called in on Wednesday who had a mental block about going to confession. Don says, I'm a lifelong Catholic who attends church regularly. Ever since the church went, quote, face-to-face confession and did away with the private confessional booth, I find myself avoiding going to confession. It's hard enough to confess one's mistakes or sins, even harder to do it face-to-face. Others feel this way also. Can you tell me why the church has to have the face-to-face. I think more would go to confession if it could be in a, quote, non-identifiable setting. Thank you, Don in Washington. Thanks, Don. I appreciate it. So we don't have to have face-to-face. I rarely go to confession face-to-face. Rarely. I mean, uh, sometimes I do. Uh, if it's like to a spiritual director or someone with whom I'm in a kind of personal relationship. But I... I often go behind the screen. Of course, if you go to confession here at EWTN, St. Michael Hall, it's you got no other options. It's, that's right. it's behind the screen. That's, that's the way right. it is, buddy. You know, yeah, so yeah. that's that. I'd say that's more common than than not. Uh, the, the, the the anonymous confession is more common than not. Now, in the Eastern Church, it's different. Eastern Catholics uh, don't have the tradition of the anonymity. It's usually in the in the sanctuary of the church, uh, in front of the icon, priest uh-huh. and penitent stand side by side. But in the Latin church, it's still the norm, I think, to go anonymously. So you may want to check with your pastor on that to see if there is that option yeah. at that church. And if there is not at your parish, I guarantee you there will be at the parish down the road. Better believe it. Don, thanks so much uh, for your very, uh, very candid email there. 
Here's an interesting question from Rocco, who says, on a recent show, you talked about Pope Francis. You gave a balanced view on how he presented the faith. Then you talked about the difference. I'll use my interpretation of your words that he isn't as exact in his wording as other popes, and that's just him. I think the other popes being more exacting in their wording was not just their characteristic, but rather a purposeful method to keep uh, avoiding ambiguity and openness for interpretation like many Protestants do. That is why our Catholic faith has survived for more than 2,000 years. It isn't wavering in message and our faith. This would be a great discussion point for one of your questions on the show. Love your show. Thank you, Rocco. Yeah, thanks, Rocco. D- didn't exactly hear a question there. I heard a, an observation. More a like comment. a comment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I, I don't disagree with you. Uh, you know, I, I think that, that uh, you're correct, that uh, many popes have been very cautious in their wording, uh, and that is often an attempt to avoid ambiguity. I would, I would disagree that, that the pope being cautious in his wording has always uniformly served the end of clarifying and edifying uh, the the people of God, because popes have been extremely clear sometimes in making pronouncements that were imprudent to have made. Sure, right. Um, so there's no there's no guarantee. The pope is infallible when he defines a matter of faith or 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 morality to be mm-hmm. held by all the Christian faithful. But when he's not s- solemnly defining a dogma, he can err and he can make imprudent decisions. And that can include in the way he conducts himself in his in his ordinary magisterium. And so there have been popes, and probably the most celebrated example would be John the Twenty Second, who was very clear and wrong, you know, about a yeah. matter of doctrine. Yeah. Um, and uh, 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 yeah. So that's what I have to say. Appreciate that. Rago, thanks for your email. Uh, And here's one now that just popped up on YouTube. Matt in Greensboro, North Carolina. Dr. Anders, how is the filioque so divisive? It seems like such a small distinction. What am I missing regarding the filioque? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So there are theologians that believe that the filioque makes substantive distinctions and that uh, it really has a profound impact on your doctrine of God, whether or not you affirm the filioque. And so there's a substantive problem between East and West. Uh, there are many other theologians that think that it's not as big a deal as all that, and that we really can affirm the same doctrine of God regardless of whether or not we pronounce the filioque in the in the creed. And I'm, I'm more in that second camp person okay. myself. Okay, uh, I think historically the reason the filioque has been so divisive is the two reasons. One of them is political in that the, the first person to make a beef about the filioque was Photius, the, the uh, Eastern Patriarch Photius. Uh-huh. And it, it almost seems like he was kicking around for some reason to reject Roman primacy. So he, he didn't like uh, the political outcome of, of uh, the Pope's decision about his own, his own uh, patriarchate. And so he wanted to reject the Pope's jurisdiction over the Sea of Constantinople. Uh-huh. And he sort of threw everything at the wall to see what would stick. Among other things, he said the Latins were heretics because their priests shaved. And oh yeah, there's that filioque thing too. You know? <laughs> and so it just had, it really it seemed more like, let me see what I can throw at Rome and, and, and you know, have my way. Um, you know, so. Sounds good. Here comes the break. Hey, Matt, uh, thanks so much uh, for checking in. We're going to get to Peter in Cincinnati in a moment. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. 
It's called a communion here on EWTN on this Friday afternoon. Now, why am I stressing that? Well, because if you've had a question that's been bothering you perhaps all week, maybe uh, since last year, well, here's a great way to get that question answered before the weekend so you don't have to drag it around for the next couple of days. Here's our phone number, 833 888-EWTN, if you have that question for Dr. David Andrews, 833-288-3986. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones and begin with Peter, a first-time caller from Cincinnati, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hey there, Peter. Happy New Year to you. What's on your mind today, sir? Um, I have a friend who is uh, interested in becoming Catholic, or was interested, and I took him in to start the lessons. And then we both realized he was too old and too sick to go through the lessons. So we kind of backed off. Now he's a uh, a Methodist, um, and while well, he was interested, then I don't know if he still is. But he, we're talking now about death because a friend, uh, a cousin who has just died, and he's thinking, and I'm thinking, he may be passing on himself pretty soon. Mm. Um, yeah, thanks. So if the question is, can he come into the church even though he's on his deathbed, that's that's the last chance he's got. Right? Yeah, yes, of yeah. course he can. He can. And and, and uh, it, it, the, the, the pastor of the local parish can, of course, dispense with the obligation to attend RCA, and this kind of thing is very common. Pastors are very used to it. And so if you want him to be received into the church, and he and he wants to be, if he asks for it, the thing to do is contact your local parish and uh, have a conversation with the pastor and say this guy wants to be received in the church, but he's you know he's nearing death. He can't go to RCA. Could could we have him confirmed? And and the pastor will come out and talk to him, and he might very well confirm him on the spot and, and admit him to Holy Communion. That yeah. happens. I mean, I've I've seen this happen in nursing homes with people who were we who were dead a week later. Wow. Well, there you go, Peter. Thanks so much for your call and for your concern for your friend there. Hey, that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Hey, we have a brand new book to tell you about uh, available from EWTN Publishing, Standing Strong, Good Discipline, makes great teens by Dr. Ray Garendi. Dr. Ray gives parents the tools they need not only to navigate the teen years, but also to enjoy them by unpacking issues ranging from sibling relationships and peer pressure to uh, curfews and chores, overcoming backtalk, uh, teaching your kids to avoid drugs, things like three techniques for becoming a calmer parent, or five ways to monitor your child's use of technology. And uh, one of my favorites here, a strategy to motivate underachievers. Again, the book Standing Strong, Good Discipline Makes Great Teens by Dr. Ray Garendi. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Jill is in Connecticut listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Jill, what's on your mind today? Yes, hi. Um, thank you for taking my call and everything that you're doing. Um, I was just telling the screener that I was at uh, the Walmart Pharmacy here in uh, Connecticut, and this girl, very young girl, probably 19, 20 years old, was waiting on me, and she had a necklace with a 666 on it. And I just said to her, speaking of calls to communion, I said, oh, do you know what that is? Of course, I figured she'd know what it is. And she said to me, 
yes, he was a great angel. And I said, well, he's not anymore. Uh, I said, you know, he's not a great angel. I said, and, you know, why are you wearing that around your neck? And then she said to me, well, you know, he was. And I said, well, he's not anymore. So she goes, but he was. Like, I mean, I thought, oh, my God, this is such wow. a creepy conversation. So I just, I was curious. Um, when she walked away, I, someone else came over to wait on me. Um, I began to pray the uh, hail, uh, the rosary out loud. Um, and I just wondered, what do you do with that? Obviously, taking it to prayer and... Uh, what else can you do? It's so it, it just just it's so disturbing. Mm, yeah, you know. Yeah, I appreciate the question. So, you know, we we don't have a lot of conversations with occultists and Satanists on the radio show, but we have over the years. Yeah, we have. I yeah. remember one time we got a phone call from a fellow who was in fact a practicing Satanist. And it was not really doing it for him anymore. You remember that time? I do. And, I uh, do. And he asked a wonderful question. He said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, he said, I'm a Satanist, but I'm really finding it to be—it's um, causing difficulties in my moral life. And I thought, I'll bet it is. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. And he wanted to know if Catholicism could help him in that domain. And, of course, that's precisely what the Catholic Church is oriented to doing. Um, and uh, so, you know, the difficulty is if you approach someone who is fully committed to degrading themselves morally than challenging them with, well, you know, Catholicism is a way to reform your moral life and improve the situation. Well, that, they're not going to be very receptive because their position is, you don't understand, this is exactly how I want to be living. You know, yeah. I, I, yeah. repent and believe is not in my vocabulary right now. It's not my interest. But, of course, over time, that way of life is going to lead to, um, you know, a breakdown of their happiness, their sanity, their physical health, and all the rest of it. And, and Catholicism is there to provide a way of being in the world that will help us to flourish and to become the best versions of ourselves and of the most used to, uh, to our fellow man, to the common good, and, and to really live flourishing and happy lives and have the capacity to recognize the true, the good, and the beautiful in everything that we encounter. And so, you know, with everybody, whether they're an occultist or a Satanist or not, I, I think the best witness is always to manifest not just in our words, but in our demeanor, our action, our very personalities, mm -hmm. the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Catholic faith. And, you know, Mother Teresa, uh, to take a celebrated example, I mean, she would have been just as quick to rush to the aid of Satanists as she would have been to rush to the aid of anybody else, right? Yeah. And that needs to be the Catholic's disposition, to love, uh, to bless, uh, not to judge, but to evangelize by manifesting as best we can the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Catholic faith and our love of Jesus. Jill, is that helpful for you? I just had one follow-up question. Yeah. Yes, um, you know, you know, it creeped me out being around her. To be honest with you, she didn't smile once. She was obviously very downtrodden. I, I just, uh, can that affect me? Like, do I have to be careful? Like, I thought I'm going to go to a different pharmacy to get my prescriptions now because this person is there. But then I thought, no, no, that's actually you need to do the opposite. You need to go and be the witness and be the light. And stay close to the sacraments yourself, and not you don't really have to think about that. Or, or is that what? What's your response to that? Yeah, thanks. So you know, when I have read and listened to exorcists who talk about their confrontation with the powers of darkness, our position is that the devil is already doing everything that he can possibly do to destroy you. 
right? I mean, if he could tear you to pieces, he would, but if you live in the state of grace and in, you know, your close relationship to the sacraments, you're you're pretty protected against evil. Yeah. Um, you know, the danger, the primary danger with this kind of thing would be to the soul that is not secure in their faith and their moral life and could potentially be swayed to evil, you know, could be enticed. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're at great risk of being enticed. I mean, you, you find that to be not very attractive at all. In fact, you see that this girl, as you describe her, was not happy, did not smile, didn't seem to have a lot going for her in life, and you don't really want to join her in that, so I think you're pretty safe. There you go. And Jill, thanks so much for your call and for your concern uh, about your fellow man, in this case, woman. It's a call to communion here on EWTN. couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Elizabeth is a first-time caller in Sullivan County, New York, listening on iHeartRadio. Hey, Elizabeth, Happy New Year. What's on your mind today? Thank you. Happy New Year, too. I just came back to the Catholic Church. For the first time in 41 years. Wonderful. Fantastic. Yes, I feel like I'm home. I had breakfast with two women today who were educating me. And they told me that I have to believe that Jesus doesn't care if we call him Buddha or Allah. Whoever goes to heaven will get into heaven. Jesus will not ever deny anyone. And I need to know if that if that's what you teach. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. That is a misconstrual of the Catholic position, a gross misconstrual of the Catholic position. That is not the way the Church describes her relationship to world religions. Here's what the Church says, that the truth is manifested uniquely in Jesus, that the incarnation of the Son of God is the final revelation of God to mankind, and everything we need for life and godliness is present in Jesus and in the church that he founded, and that's the fullest expression of God's truth and about the moral and spiritual condition of the human race. And so it is incumbent upon us to evangelize, to spread the gospel to all the nations, and and to make Catholicism and the Catholic way available to people from different religious traditions. And we certainly wouldn't turn anyone away if they wanted to convert to Catholicism from Buddhism or from Islam or Hinduism or what have you. And we would regard that as a move in the right direction. Right? If they were to move from one of those traditions to the Catholic faith, we would say, yes, that's the proper thing to do. We're glad you did it. Now, that being said... Um, it is not impossible for a person in another religious tradition to be saved, because God does extend grace to everyone. But but that doesn't mean that we presume the salvation of everyone, right? Um, and, and it does make a difference how you conceive of the deity, how you conceive of the path of salvation, how you conceive of the moral life. And so, uh, for example, the Islamic tradition does not teach the same things about the moral life that the Catholic tradition teaches. Does not do it. Does not teach it. Right? Uh, I'll give you an example. And of course, as soon as I say this, there are going to be Muslims that take issue with me and say I've misconstrued Islam. But there are at least some Muslims right, who, based on the, the Quran's surah on women, to take one passage uh, you know, as exemplary, um, think that it is perfectly morally legitimate for men to take women as sex slaves if they have been taken in the conquest of holy war. If, they're, if they are the spoils of war, then non-Muslim women can be taken as sex slaves. And we saw that, for example, when ISIS was uh, 
uh, running amok in Syria. Yes. Uh, they were taking Yazidi women and Christian women, and they were subjecting them to sexual slavery and, and trafficking them, selling them back and forth and abusing mm. them in various ways. And, uh, and at least within that particular branch of Islam, that was understood to be morally justified. Well, Catholics don't think that. You cannot take women as sex slaves whether or not you have conquered them in religious warfare. That is out of bounds. Now, it makes a real difference to your moral life whether you believe in sex slavery or not. Makes a major difference. And, and we would not regard that as a thing indifferent. And so, you know, for example, if a man takes a woman as a sex slave, uh, from the Catholic point of view, that is really not the way to get to heaven. And that would be a very grave sin. And it matters. It matters what you believe because it will translate into how you behave. I mean, classically, if you look at paganism, uh, you know, uh, Mesoamerican paganism practiced uh, uh, human sacrifice uh, and, uh, and, and chattel slavery for the purpose of generating victims for sacrifice. Well, anyone that says, well, hey, all religions are the same, has to, has to deal with the fact that the Catholic Church says, no, you cannot offer humans in sacrifice. And the Mesoamerican Aztecs said, yes, you can. Those are real substantive differences. Uh, even within the Christian fold, there are differences of morality. One Christian group says that you cannot kill babies. That would be the Catholic Church. So you can't kill babies. There are other Christian groups that say, well, yeah, you can kill them all day long, provided they're under a certain age. That's a real substantive difference in the way you construct your moral life. It's not a thing indifferent. Now, did I just say that no Muslims can go to heaven? I did not say that. I did not say that. I didn't say that, you know, Christians from other denominations can't go to heaven. I didn't say that. What I will say is that when they teach things that are contrary to the truth about God or the moral life, those teachings constitute a real impediment for those people to come to holiness. Real impediment. And there are instances where in order to come to holiness— a person would have to actually contradict the teaching of their own tradition when that teaching contradicts the truth about God or the moral life that we can know from natural law or Christian revelation. Elizabeth, thanks so much for your call. Here's a question now from Donna in Miami. What does the term extraordinary form mean? Is this a new way of worshiping? Has this been around for a long time? Can you help me figure this out? Well, it's not like extreme worship, like extreme sports. This is not like, you know, <laughs> the, the mass on, uh, on, on snow skis, you know, going, no. going off a cliff at 80 no. miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. um, so in this, in this context, ordinary means the, 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 the normal use, the normal liturgical practice of the church, the one that is, that is uh, 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 well, it's what you're going to expect if you go to your average parish or you go to the, to the, the Pope's Mass in the Vatican, right? Yeah, yeah. And after the reform of the Mass, after the Second Vatican Council, um, things like worship in the vernacular and a revised lectionary and revised prayers and so forth, that's the normal, the ordinary form of the Mass. The extraordinary form means the form that is not the normal one. And in this instance, it refers to the Tridentine Mass, the Latin Mass of the 16th century that, uh, that endured up until the reform of the Mass. And it's still allowable under restricted circumstances, but it's not the, that's not the normal way. Okay. Well, there it is. Appreciate that. By the way, if you'd like to send us an email that we can uh, tackle on a future show, here's the address, ctc 
at EWTN.com, CTC at EWTN.com. We try to do a couple of emails on each one of our live shows, and then once a month or so, we'll uh, pull out the mailbag and answer a whole passel of questions. Again, the address, CTC at EWTN.com. But you know what? We're doing uh, phone calls today, live phone calls at 833 833- 288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. Maybe you'd like to explain to us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this beautiful Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Interesting email here from Suze, who says, a Protestant acquaintance is using John 3.16 to justify his desire to have an affair with a woman he refuses to marry. He says that verse, John 3.16, guarantees his forgiveness. The woman disagrees. She says it's presumptuous to assume you're going to be forgiven for something you know is wrong, but you do it anyway, the sin of presumption. She points to Peter 2 and Jesus's instructions to the wayward women, go and sin no more. So my question is, is there a stronger argument she can make to show him he is misinterpreting that passage? Thank you, Suze. You betcha, you betcha. So, John 3.16, of course, is this famous passage, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so the question is, how is it the case that believing in Christ brings about eternal life? And your, your adulterer, your would-be adulterer, takes the position that in virtue of my belief, God grants me a get-out-of-hell-free card, mm. right? Um, there's nothing in the text that says that, and the rest of the New Testament uh, militates strongly against it. Um, in his epistles, John says that if we claim to know him and yet do not walk as Jesus walked, if we don't live a righteous, virtuous life, then we are liars and the truth is not in us. That if the truth is in us, then we will, then we will live free from sin. That's the explicit teaching of, uh, of 1 John. And uh, the, the, the way that faith in Christ saves us is that we take Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We take him as our Lord, and we imitate his life of righteousness empowered by the Spirit that he gives us. St. Paul tells us that the Spirit of God enables us to keep the righteous requirements of the law. That's Romans 2, 25 to 29. And he, he also says that it's not those who hear the law, it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous, Romans 2, 13. Again, that is an obedience that comes as a result of faith and the gift of the Spirit. We can't do it without God's help. But with the help of God, we really do live the righteous life and the fruits of the Spirit, like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control flow from within us enabling God to pronounce a just verdict against us and say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Uh, and the scriptures are explicit that if we claim to know Christ but don't live as Jesus lives, then it's better never to have entered the way of righteousness. So Second Peter chapter 2, for example, talks about this exact thing. If you claim to know Jesus and yet you turn back to this kind of immoral behavior, 
um, you're better off never having followed Christ to begin with, because your judgment will be worse. Yeah. Um, Paul writes in Galatians chapter five that if we if we return to fornication and adultery and factions and hatred and jealousy and drunkenness and carousing and disobedience to parents and the like, uh, then we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right. And and you know so there, there's so many problems with this position that your friend has taken or your would-be adulterer, but not the least of which is that it makes mincemeat of the New Testament. It's a really bad exegesis. But beyond that, it's a really deformed view of human life and flourishing. Right? It's as if to say, you know, the best way of life, he would think, is the hedonistic life in which I serve myself in my baser pleasures, and uh, and get to go to heaven to boot when I die. And that that's really a very foolish way of thinking, right? It, I mean, this is easiest to see when one's base pleasures lead one into, you know, manifestly and immediately self-destructive behavior, like drug addiction. Imagine someone who said, you know, the best form of life is burning up all my dopamine receptors as fast as possible on methamphetamine and then blowing my brains out. Like, no, that's not a good life. <laughs> no. It's, and, 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 you know, adultery and these other things are just a— a slower way of committing suicide. I mean, it's yeah. very evident with the drug addiction, but it's the same principle that I, if I live for myself and my hedonistic pleasures and allow myself to be a creature of passion, gee, how attractive that is. No, it's a hideous way of being. And we don't admire that. No one looks at a person who's who's the slave of their passions and says, gee, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And, uh, and I find it so sad for someone to embrace a religious philosophy that would basically say, you know, that's okay. You know, that allowing myself to become an, an animal and to be governed by my passions is somehow a desirable out outcome simply because I get to go to heaven when I die. I mean, you don't go to heaven when you die if you do that, but you start living in hell now. That's the other thing, right? Sure. The, the, the Christian life, the, the moral life, the life of virtue and self-restraint uh, is, in fact, the good life whether or not you go to heaven, right? And so the, the Catholic position is that the virtuous life is the life of heaven begun now, it's where we really have the capacity for the greatest happiness, the greatest fruition. And the life of sin and degradation is to begin the life of hell now. And you just get more of that after you die. Yeah. Suze, thanks so much uh, for your email on behalf of your acquaintance there. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Jennifer is listening in New Jersey on the EWTN app. Hey there, Jennifer. What's on your mind today? So I have a question. Uh, I am actually a devout uh, Catholic. I went to Mass today, and uh, I went up to my pastor uh, during communion, and I received two Eucharists. And obviously I wasn't going to hand it back to him. So I went back, you know, I took them both, and I sat, uh, you know, came back to the pew, and I offered one up to my recently deceased cousin as, as, you know, kind of, you know, since I've already taken one. I mean, is that something, I mean, generally I know you can't hand them back, so you have to take both. Yeah, so question, was this yeah. just the pastor's error? He accidentally handed you two consecrated hosts? Yeah, but it was really funny because I actually, not funny, but I had come with the intentions, uh, prayer intentions for my cousin who actually passed um, passed away um, a couple uh, days ago due to suicide. But I I just felt like, you know, I went today, you know, with, with intentions just to pray for him, and it was really kind of interesting that I received two. <laughs> yeah, so first of all, what you did was absolutely appropriate. I mean, if you if you if you look down and there's two consecrated hosts in your hand, I mean, and you've gone back to your pew, the appropriate thing to do is to consume them. That's fine. And from a canonical point of view, that's one act of communion. You didn't commune twice. You really just communed once. Sure. And uh, I mean, it would be just like if you took a host. You, you shouldn't do this, but if one were to take a host and break it in two, 
it's just still just one communion, right? right you know, right. Um, and uh, the only time you worry about taking uh, communion twice would be like you know outside of the mass. You took communion at mass, and then you wanted to go receive communion, say at, at your friend's sick bed in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And there's actually law about that, and and you're allowed, you're permitted to receive communion twice in a day if the second communion is in the context of a liturgy, ah. right? Um, now, by contrast, let's say you met your friend and the priest at his sickbed at 9 a.m., and the priest offered you communion, you could take communion. And then you could, again, the second time, you could go to Mass that night and receive communion again. But you're not supposed to multiply communions throughout the day, lest uh, you fall into the, the danger of superstition. Thinking sure. Some people, you know, in, in ages past thought, well, if, I, if one communion is, is good, 15 might be better, you know, which is really to misconstrue the nature and value of communion, which is to unite the soul with Christ. Jennifer, thanks so much for your call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. A big word coming up, big word. This is from Kevin in Bellevue, Nebraska, who wrote uh, just yesterday, actually. He says, Dr. David discussed the perspicuity of Scripture and three dimensions that Protestants bring to the interpretation of Scripture. Could you please explain this again? Yeah, so that was a popular one. We've had like four requests for repeating that answer. Yeah. So um, this was really kind of off the fly. I mean, somebody somebody called me and said, what are the differences in the way Protestants and Catholics interpret the Bible? And so Uh I said, well, let me come up with a few. So I'm not claiming this is the definitive list. It's just like what I came up with at the moment. And the, the first difference, major difference, that I was thinking of, and there are, I'm sure, many others, is that Protestants regard the Bible as the Church's rule of faith, meaning that it's the document that Jesus gave us to, to, to basically definitively uh, guide Christian faith and practice. Uh-huh. And Catholics don't regard the Bible that way. We think the Bible's inspired, it's, it's holy, it's God's book, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit— but that its function, its purpose in the life of the Church is not to be that sort of be-all and end-all uh, comprehensive manual on Christian life and faith. There's, a, there's another institution that serves that purpose for a Catholic, and that's the teaching Church, right? And that whether or not you regard the Bible as the rule of faith is going to have a major impact on how you interpret it. And I'll give you an example. So as a Catholic, I don't think that the Bible answers everything I need to know about the moral life. I think there are moral questions for which I will have to go, say, to the magisterium of the Church, or perhaps even to philosophical reflection in order to arrive at a just judgment on a moral issue. Um, but if I'm a Protestant, I, I am presuming that all my moral questions can be answered from within the confines of the Bible. And, and so I'm gonna, I might draw conclusions—in fact, I will draw conclusions—about about the nature of morality based on that restriction, Okay. Um, and so when I was a child growing up in the Protestant Church, for example, uh, let's take one example, the issue of contraception. Um, the Bible has not a lot to say about contraception. Not a lot. It has a little bit, but not much to say about it, which has led many Protestants to conclude, well, if the Bible doesn't talk about it, it must be a thing that's morally indifferent. So there's an implication there that the Bible's comprehensive, and if it doesn't address something, I don't need to know about it. And so in doing that, Protestants are often left believing that large areas of Christian behavior or human behavior are morally indifferent when, in fact, they may be very morally relevant. Hmm. So that's a, that's a major difference. Okay. Now, if you're a fundamentalist, the problem is even worse, because then not only does the Bible not talk about some things, but it explicitly talks about others in a way that would tend to make the interpreter 
think that behaviors are okay that are not, in fact, okay. I'll give you an example. Slavery apologists during the Civil War, Southern Presbyterian slavery apologists, routinely pointed to the slavery legislation in the Old Testament to justify their own practice of chattel slavery in the South. And uh, and if you if you take the Bible as a fundamentalist would takes it would take it you you might you fall into that error of just sort of taking the Old Testament legislation and applying it without qualification to the modern world that doesn't go I mean that there are things in there that don't accord with uh, the ideal form of human life and even and Jesus acknowledges that in passages like Matthew 19 so the the whole rule of faith business is one major problem. Um, another difference between Catholics and Protestants is what we got into earlier, this idea of the perspicuity of Scripture. And the Protestant doctrine of perspicuity holds that the Bible uh, you know, is uh, sufficiently clear that a person of faith and goodwill can approach it and, and learn what they need to know to be saved, and uh, that the Bible is not fundamentally obscure. And the Catholic position is very different from that. The Catholic position has always been that the Bible is a rather obscure book, and that it has uh, multiple layers of interpretive significance, and that the literal sense of the Bible, while sort of foundational, is ultimately the least important, and that the spiritual sense of the text, which would incorporate things like allegory and, and, uh, and the moral life and, 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 uh, and our transcendent yearning for God, mm-hmm. uh, is where all the action is. Uh, spiritually speaking, you know, in terms of converting our hearts and changing our lives, and that proper access to the to the spiritual dimension of the text requires not only spiritual illumination and you know guidance of the Holy Spirit, mm. but uh, but can in require a degree of professional expertise and biblical interpretation, guided, of course, by the two thousand year tradition of the Church, which is not ready at hand for most people. Right, uh, that makes a big difference again in how you understand the meaning or the significance of the text and apply it to your life. Trying to think what my third distinction was. I talked about <laughs> I talked about uh, the rule of faith. I talked about perspicuity. Talked about fundamentalism. Um, now it's gone out of my head. I'll have to come back to it later. I'm sure you will. Yeah. And uh, Kevin, thanks so much for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. Hey, be sure to join us this weekend, uh, Sunday morning, for the Fathers of Mercy Hour. If you're up and early, uh, that would be 4 a.m. Eastern. This week's show, Father Wade Menezes will be along. He'll be discussing the Blessed Virgin Mary as Mother of Mercy, a great program, the Fathers of Mercy Hour, Sunday morning, 4 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Emily, a first-time caller from Saskatchewan, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hello, Emily. What's on your mind today? Hi there. Uh, I'm not religious or anything, um, but I was wondering, because I like thinking about philosophy a lot, uh, can there be morality without God? Yeah, I uh, really appreciate the question. So it, it kind of depends on what you mean by without God, right? Um, if you mean, can there be morality, can a person be moral without a conscious belief in God, then the answer to that question would be absolutely yes. A person could be moral without a conscious belief in God. Uh, if you mean, if the universe were construed atheistically, if the re- if the universe really were constituted the way say, uh, uh, materialists think that the universe is constituted, namely, you were just an assemblage of atoms thrown together randomly with no purpose or meaning uh, uh, in- inherent within them, then it's, it's harder to imagine how you, could, uh, how you could arrive at moral absolutes. Um, now, 
the way atheists and materialists uh, counter that. Now, many of them are just moral relativists. It's very common to have atheists who say, well, you know, I, I think the universe is basically purposeless, and therefore I think human life is basically purposeless, and so I don't believe in, uh, uh, you know, that there's any kind of moral absolute. Now, there, there are other atheists and materialists. I'm thinking in particular of a guy like Sam Harris, who, uh, who is uh, adamant that he is not a moral relativist, and he believes that there are moral absolutes. The way I understand Harris and people like him when they argue for moral absolutes without God, is to say something like this, that, um, that there are objective facts about human flourishing, like the human person is constituted in such a way that some behaviors tend to happiness and others don't. Some tend to flourishing and others don't. And uh, when I talk about morality, I just mean the, the, the set of behaviors that tend to flourishing. Right. Yeah. And I, I will concede that. Like, I think that's that's fine as far as it goes. And as a Catholic, I don't disagree with that. Here's here's where that view of morality falls short of the Catholic view of morality. Um, uh, so a famous philosopher who took that view would be Aristotle among the Greeks. Aristotle did not believe he did believe in God, but he didn't believe in the Christian God. But his doctrine of God had little to do with morality. Right. For Aristotle, the moral life, the ethical life could be arrived at through rational reflection on the nature of the human person. Uh-huh. And he wrote a big fat book about it called The Nicomachean Ethics, where he describes what he thinks the moral life looks like. And it's all just a rational consideration of human nature and how humans function. Interestingly, what you won't find in Aristotle is the idea of thou shalt or thou shalt not. The, mm. the, 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 the sort of imperative that we tend to associate today with, with morality. You know, you should, you ought, you must. That's missing in Aristotle's account of morality. Mm. And um, uh, a modern atheist, I'm thinking of Martin Seligman, who's the former president of the American Psychological Association, wrote a book called Authentic Happiness. He does something similar. Uh, Seligman says, look, here's what the scientific data shows about human flourishing. Now, these are the conditions, these are the, the set of attitudes, these are the behaviors that will tend to make you happy. But Seligman's an atheist, and he says, I can't tell you that you should be happy, <laughs> you know, if you want to be miserable, you know, I've got no problem with it. I'm a relativist, he says. But here's the set of behaviors that will make you happy if happiness is a thing that you value. That That's where belief in God can shore up a naturalistic doctrine of morality, because the the Catholic position is that God simply wills human happiness. And so the, 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 the element of thou shalt or thou shalt not, you know, the, the sanction behind morality— uh-huh is guaranteed by the divine mind, uh, whereas I might be able to arrive at a list of moral absolutes without knowledge of God, but I wouldn't really be able to put teeth into them until I have a doctrine of God behind it. Does that make sense to you? Yes, that was a really interesting answer. I appreciate how well-read you are. I don't necessarily agree with uh, the Christian conception of morality, but I... Sure. Well, we lost her. Oh, oh, what a shame. Awesome. What a so shame. I would love to talk more about the, quote, Christian conception of morality, end quote, because by my reckoning, there isn't just one. Mm. Right? There are lots of people who claim to represent Christianity and give out uh, moral absolutes 
that may or may not accord with the Catholic understanding of morality. And my interest in this show is not to defend something called the Christian view of morality, yeah. but rather to defend the Catholic view of morality, there which is go. a subset of the Christian view of morality. Do call us back another time, Emily. Love to talk with you about that. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Jerry listening in Yuma, Arizona on Yuma Catholic Radio. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, hello, Dr. Anders. Um, hey, you're talking about morality. Let me mention here, I was raised a Catholic and went to Catholic school, and um, I'm not a practicing Catholic now. And large part is due to the behavior of the nuns. It seemed to be generally accepted back then that nuns were allowed to abuse kids physically, psychologically, intimidate them, threaten them. And um, so a lot of the people I grew up with, they're not practicing Catholics either. I'm wondering how that situation arose in the Church um, and was actually considered okay by the general uh, Catholic believers. How is that possible? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I, first of all, like you, I find that repulsive— and I have no interest in it. I, I don't want to defend that view of education. Um, I didn't go to Catholic schools. I went to fundamentalist Christian schools, in which I also witnessed bad behavior uh, of faculty towards students, and it turned my stomach, and I, to this day, I, I get a real queasy feeling in my, in my gut when I look back on my educational experience. So I, I, I agree with you about that. Um, and I don't want to defend it. I have no interest in defending what I regard to be as a, as a harmful and malicious practice. I do want to contextualize it, and that is that if you study the history of education, not just Catholic education, but just education as such, going uh -huh. back to antiquity, what you will find is that the behavior of the nuns was mild by comparison from what you would have expected in Greek and Latin antiquity. Hmm. And so it was not uncommon for pedagogues in the ancient world to employ whips— Right, and the and of course this was just bad hu human psychology. But the ex but the idea was that um, lazy students, you know, as they were understood to be lazy, the, uh, those that weren't performing, could be beaten into subjection. They could be beaten into learning. Now, there's a, we have an account of that uh, in the Confessions of Saint Augustine from the fourth century. Augustine was a Catholic bishop, but he had he had been educated among pagans. And he he recounts for us how distasteful he found his education because of all the beatings that he received, not mm -hmm. at the hands of Catholic nuns, but at the hand of pagan pedagogues. So uh, I think you'll find the same thing in Asian culture, uh, uh, you know, a variety of Asian cultures. Um, I know when I, was, uh, when I was a young man, I studied karate, actually, from a Japanese fellow who, um, who routinely used a bamboo stick and, you know, beat us all up and back, you know, black and blue. Ow. And... Um, and uh, they don't do that anymore. The 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 uh, the uh, legal environment has changed, and and you know litigation and stuff has made that sort of approach uh, untenable. But but it's, that's that's kind of the norm, I think, in a lot of civilizations. And the idea that that children are vulnerable and that that uh, early childhood is a time of of uh, when they need to be sort of handled with kid gloves and and to curate their little their little psychology. I really think that's a fairly modern development, and I think you will find that the Catholic Church, Catholic pedagogues today, are very much on board with what child psychology has discerned in these in these areas, 
And, uh, and you won't find many Catholic schools today that advocate for that kind of rough treatment. But I think that is a response to what, uh, what scientific study of, uh, of, uh, of pedagogy has, uh, has delivered to us. Jerry, thanks so much for your call. Appreciate hearing from you in Yuma. This email uh, from Mark, why should I be Catholic rather than Eastern Orthodox? And would I be a heretic if I became Orthodox? Right. Thanks. I appreciate the question. So um, the reason to become Catholic, in my judgment as a Catholic, is that the papacy is an essential institution in the church's government established by Jesus. Right, and that Christ intended Peter to have uh, the primacy as well as universal jurisdiction over the church. Now, the arguments for that you may already know them; they're biblical and patristic. And uh, and if you are persuaded of their truth, as I am, then you would be bound in conscience to become Catholic. Um, now, it's not a matter, in my judgment, of spirituality or liturgy or or even of the larger theological tradition, because if you were attracted, say, to Eastern spirituality or Eastern liturgy or the Eastern a patristic patrimony, you can always become an Eastern Rite Catholic. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I know Anglos that grew up in the Protestant world who became Catholic, but when they were received into the Catholic Church, were specifically received into the Byzantine Catholic Church rather than the Latin Catholic Church. That's okay. If you're into Eastern stuff, go Byzantine, right? Um, but Catholic means that you're in communion with the Pope, whom you regard as possessing universal jurisdiction over the Church. So that's really kind of where the where the buck stops. Um, and then would you be a heretic from the Catholic Church's point of view? Um, so canonically, a heretic is a Catholic who rejects something, obstinately, I should add, obstinately rejects something that the Church declares to be revealed by God. Um, now, that we don't refer to non-Catholics as heretics, right? Because they're, they're not they don't recognize that they're bound by the Church's teaching authority. So we don't call Protestants heretics. We call them in error, right? Uh, and we would never refer to Orthodox Christians as heretics. We would say that we think they, they're not right about their understanding of the papacy. But we wouldn't call them heretics, no. Okay. Appreciate that. And uh, thank you so much for your email. Dr. David Anders, have a great, great weekend. Thank you, Tom. Hope everybody has a great weekend. We'll uh, be doing this again on Monday, as we do it every Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern here on EWTN Radio. You can also check out the podcast by going to EWTN.com slash radio, and then look for the words up in the upper right corner that says uh, Podcast Central. Click on that, look for Call to Communion, and you're good to go. On behalf of our fantastic team here, including our dear friend Jeff Burson, who I personally say to you, Godspeed, Jeff. Have a great weekend, everybody. Have a great weekend, and we will see you on Monday right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless. God bless.